Well, just to kind of remind you where we are in numbers, you'll remember uh, the children of Israel came all the way to the edge of the promised land, sent spies out into the land for 40 days. They came back, gave a bad report. Twelve spies went into the land. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, really came back with a good report, having the faith to go forward. And the, the other ten spies actually gave a bad report, stirred up fear in the heart of the people, saying, oh, it's, it's too difficult for us. Their people are... Are, are well fortified and they're giants in the land. They're just too much for us. Kind of spooked the people of God. And rather than going forward in faith, believing that God was giving them this land and would give them the victory, instead they actually refused to go forward. And the Lord then said, very well, then you will not go into the land. It will be your children that will go into the land. So everyone 20 years of age and older, that refused to go forward, ended up spending the next 40 years in the wilderness. And they would all eventually, that whole generation would pass away. And it would be the children of that generation that would then ultimately go with Joshua in to possess the land. And only Joshua and Caleb would have survived that original generation to go forward and possess the land. So that's kind of the backdrop. That's just recently happened, uh, chapter, chapter 14. And now in chapter 15, we see God speaking once again of sacrifices to be offered. And it's, it's a, it is kind of a, a timely spot for this chapter because God speaks to them of the sacrifices that they will offer upon entering the promised land. So God has just told the generation that is not going in, and yet he is not saying that you will never go in as a people. The next generation will go in, and he begins to speak then of those sacrifices and offerings that God would would want of them as they enter into the land. This would confirm his promise that he is, in fact, going to bring his people into this promised land. His promise has not been made void, although this generation would not see it. I'm just going to summarize chapter 15 for us. It's pretty lengthy. And a lot of detail on on some things we've looked at in times past, the grain and drink offerings, and uh, some of the different uh, sacrifices that God would instruct them on. So I'm just going to summarize it for you. Verses 1 through 21, God is going to give details again about the grain and the drink offerings. These would not be necessarily offerings made for the atonement of sin, but rather these would be known as fellowship and devotion offerings. These would be offerings that you would make unto the Lord to fulfill a vow, Or this would be an offering that you would just make as a free will offering to the Lord. In other words, God giving his people opportunity, not out of some duty to offer, although there were offerings that were required. There were regular tithes and offerings that the people were to bring and to give to the work of the Lord to support the Levites, to support the ministry. But above and beyond that, that normal required giving, God made opportunity for the people to give of their own free will. Some wanted to do more. Some wanted to just express, you know, a thanksgiving to the Lord. Some wanted to make a vow to the Lord. These would be just hearts that wanted to devote themselves to the Lord. And God allowed these offerings to kind of serve as a vehicle for the people to worship him, for the people to come and fellowship with him. That's the idea of a fellowship offering. You would bring a meal that would be burnt Uh, and you would also participate in part of it, you and your family, as if you and the Lord were dining together, enjoying a meal together, God looking for a sense of fellowship and relationship with his people. That hasn't changed. God still desires 
relationship, fellowship. God is not looking for some religious duty or action that is kind of done out of, you know, kind of regimented, you know, response. God is looking for that heart that says, I love you, God. I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want your presence in my life. I want to have a, a, a devotion life that is just regularly in your presence. And I want to bring offering to you, Lord. I want to give of my life, of my time, of my resources, because you have given so much to me. I want my life to be yours. And so God giving the people there of Israel opportunity and giving them, when, when he says, now when you get into the promised land, these would be some of the offerings. And it, you'll see a number of places where it talks about these offerings going up to the Lord as a sweet aroma to the Lord. These would be kind of like an incense in the presence of the Lord. The Lord would receive this favorably. This would be something that would bless the Lord. Think about that. God of the universe. What can you give to him that he needs tonight? What does the Lord have need of? Really, nothing. What can we do for the Lord that somehow you know, would be a favor for him or somehow you know, something he, he really needs us to do? There's nothing. God is complete. God has no need of anything. And yet, God has made himself available in relationship with his people and made opportunity for you and I through our worship, through our lives devoted to him, that they can rise like an insect. God will be pleased in that. We can still bless the Lord. There's nothing that the Lord needs, but there are, there's a great deal that we can do that will please the Lord and will bless him and, and, and touch his heart as a sweet aroma, it says. We we'll also talk about the first of your ground. In other words, something of the first fruits. When you get into this promised land, your first, the first crop that comes up from the ground, I want you to acknowledge and give thanks to me that it's my provision for you. This would be the grain and drink offerings. In verses 22 through 30, there would be laws concerning unintentional sin. This would be offerings that would atone for those sins that the people did, uh, in some cases accidentally or unintentionally, all of a sudden. Uh, some sins happen that way, don't they? You don't realize it, but you've broken a command and didn't mean to, didn't think of it, didn't even realize it, but... Still, there's atonement that's necessary. Remember Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. Why? For they don't know what they're doing. So many of of the sins that people commit, they don't even realize that they're sinning. Uh, God has to ultimately illuminate the conscience, but God also provided a way for these sins to be atoned for. Verses 30 and 31, uh, a different type of sin. This would be God addresses presumptuous sins. These are sins that are done willfully, deliberately. Sins that uh, really a person would actually despise the word of the Lord, refuse to obey and walk in the commandments of the Lord. And for that person, he would be cut off from the congregation. If you simply refused to yield and submit to the laws and the ordinance of God for his people and for the, you know, the the society that God was bringing them into, then you would simply be removed from that, that, that fellowship. You would be excommunicated, and uh, that's presumptuous and just a refusal to obey. And then we get even in something of a case study in verses 32 through 36, where there is a man who does this very willful, deliberate disobedience. He goes out and gathers wood on the Sabbath, and God gives instruction that he is to be removed from the camp and actually stoned to death. You might say that seems like something of a light infraction to be require the death penalty, but not in God's economy for this people at this time. God had been very 
careful to identify the laws of the Sabbath. You are not to work and gather wood on the Sabbath. You are not to light a fire on the Sabbath. So here's this man. He's out gathering wood for what purpose? To light a fire on the Sabbath. Just a complete disregard, a willful disobedience. And God punishes that within the nation. Uh, Finally, verses 37 through 41, God would give a description of what's called the blue tassels. These would be a blue tassel that would be woven into the hem of the garments. And this was to be something of a reminder. As you would walk through the camp, you would see the blue tassel down on the hem of the garment, and that would remind you of God's commandments. This would be like a visual reminder, a very practical, in front of your eyes at regu- you know, regularly through the camp and through the, uh, the, 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 the people there. You would be, you'd be seeing this reminder to obey the Lord and his commandments. So God being very practical in reminding them. So Numbers chapter 15, that summarizes it. And, of course, the details are there for you as well. Let's move on to number 16 tonight. This is where we'll spend the balance of our time. This is known as Korah's Rebellion. Uh, this is a fairly famous rebellion in the Scriptures, referred to in, number of, in a number of other places throughout the Scripture. Korah would be something of the leader of this rebellion, but he would be embraced. This rebellion would be embraced by, by a number of other leaders also, as we'll see. And this is, this is a text that we will work our way through. And uh, take a look. This is a a rebellion that's going to be led against Moses and Aaron, the leadership there that God had ordained for the people. But ultimately, as they rebelled against God's appointed leaders, they really are truly rebelling against God himself. So uh, it is something of a classic case of rebellion. Uh, In fact, Jude in the New Testament refers to this event of Korah's rebellion. He says of those who reject God's authority in Jude 10 and 11, he says, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. In these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Jude, even pulling up some of the classic examples of the Old Testament to help illustrate this rebellion that still exists in the heart of men, clear into the New Testament and, of course, clear into our time and life in the church as well. Let's take a look here and we'll work our way through. Look with me now. The rebellion itself comes to light, verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to him, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Very interesting, this this rebellion. We notice that it, it arises actually within the very leadership of the nation. You would think that as leaders of the congregation, they would know better. Those that have been established in leadership 
understand the idea of God's authority and how God ordains authority in the life of his people. But as it turns out, oftentimes leadership are the most vulnerable uh, to these kinds of uh, temptations because oftentimes those that are involved in leadership, they kind of get into the inner workings of leadership and it isn't very long that they begin to think, why are we doing it that way, Moses? Why, Aaron, why are you, why you and your family are the only ones that did get to do the, the high priestly duties? You see, being so close to that, that ministry is why they began to kind of covet it and began to rise up with pride. And it is come up from the leadership, a position of privilege, had Korah. We see here that he was of the tribe of Levi. He was already a, a, a tribe that had been singled out for ministry, and yet he aspired more. He didn't want to just be part of the Levitical ministry. He wanted the priestly role as well, which was excluded, exclusive for Aaron and his family. Dathan and Abiram, they were of Reuben, and they wanted the leadership, that civil leadership, governing leadership that Moses had. These men must have been themselves pretty persuasive. They must have been really natural leaders. These must have been very capable men because they were able to kind of bring 250 others with them, uh, getting others stirred up as well. They must have been fairly persuasive. Persuasive, excuse me. I'll quote one commentator here. He says, and I'll try to have it for you on the overhead, those who rebel against God's order are often those who are close to the top and who think they ought themselves to be at the top. And this is what happened with Korah, Dathan and Abiram, these were men of leadership in the congregation, and they began to aspire to be even usurping the leadership that God had placed over them. And it, and it clearly, they, they, they stirred others up. They didn't just come one at a time. They didn't just come privately and speak to Moses or Aaron. No, they came with a posse. They came with a group, didn't they? And this is often the way... Rebellion works. It stirs up. It looks to kind of form a little, you know, confederacy. And then let's go and let's, you know, confront. And this is exactly what you see happening here. Uh, interesting. I'm going to try and put this up for you. Is there a picture of the camp? That, yeah. I don't know if you can make this out. But you see the tabernacle. This is the way God had prescribed the the tribes of Israel to actually camp surrounding the tabernacle. Now, the Levites were the closest inner circle around the tabernacle, and to the south were the Kohathites. This is the tribe that Korah was from. Immediately to the south of them, can you see that tribe by that flag at the bottom? Reuben. That's where Dathan and Abiram were from. So these guys all camped together. And as it often is in rebellion, these guys find each other. They always seem to... To, to congregate together. And what you see here is that this is actually, when they, as they were camped around the tabernacle, they had all kinds of opportunity to talk and compare notes and have their secret prayer meetings, as they are known today. Uh, you know, how many churches I've, I've heard where, you know, uh, sometimes rebellions start, church splits start, people getting together for, quote-unquote, prayer meetings. And it's really a meeting that's to talk about the, the discontent that they have in their heart with the leadership that God has in place in the body, in this case, in, this, in the nation of Israel. 
And this is often the way the enemy works even today. They always seem to find each other. Well, 250 men came. And they come, and it's clear what's motivating them. It's something of spiritual pride. Now, notice what they say. And this is often the way rebellion works. So some things just to learn from this case study. First of all, if you're a leader or if you're somebody involved in ministry, you're a target. That's, that's exactly who the enemy wants to stir up. Those that are not really a part of a body, those that are not really contributing to a body, you know, to stir them up, it doesn't really necessarily impact as it does if someone is engaged and involved in ministry. So these leaders, they became targets, and uh, they come and they often do. They made it sound, they, they just sounded so spiritual, didn't they? Look what they said again there in verse 3. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You two take too much upon yourselves. Listen, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And that was true. And the Lord is among them. That was true. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? That was false. So there was some truth laced into this accusation. The truth is uh, the nation was God's people. They were holy before the Lord because of the sacrifices that God had instituted. The tabernacle, God is saying, I, the holiness of God is dwelling among you. You're my people. I, uh, I'm your God. And so they come and they say, you know, listen, all of God's people are holy. True. God dwells amongst all this, these people. That is true also. So then why are you exalting yourself to be the leader? Why not? Why isn't everybody else have access to that leadership? And for Korah, you know, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Levi. Why can't we do the high priest ministry? And that was the part where they crossed the line. They, they had some spiritual motivation, but truthfully in their heart, it was about themselves being exalted and being lifted up. And they bring not only this making it sound spiritual, but ultimately it is a false accusation saying you take too much and you exalt yourselves. Listen, Aaron and Moses only took what the Lord had given to them. They didn't take anything. God had entrusted this ministry to them. They had not exalted themselves. The Lord had established their leadership, not themselves, accusing Moses and Aaron of pride and blind to their own. You take too much upon yourself, Moses. You're trying to do too much around here. You're, just, you're the big dog here. You think you're running the whole show. Aaron, you guys, you want to, you're the only ones that can go and, and offer you know, sacrifices before the Lord. They're, they think in, in their minds that, that Moses and Aaron are actually operating in some kind of pride. But it is their own pride that is rising up and is blinding them to the truth of what God is doing in the nation. I remind you of a passage in Romans 12, verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In the context, this passage in Romans is saying, listen, God has something for each and every one to do within the body, within the ministry, within the fellowship of God's people. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think meaning that you ought to be doing what someone else is called to do. For God has given each a measure of faith. You need to be faithful with what God has called you to do, Korah. 
And Korah had a role, as we'll see. You need to be faithful what God has called you to do, you children of Reuben. God has given you ministry. God has given you a place within the body. But now you're beginning to think more highly of yourself. And notice what it says in Romans there. Uh, Don't do that, but rather think how? Soberly. You see, because when you start to think more highly, when you start to let pride or jealousy or envy or covetousness come into your thinking, you're not thinking soberly. You're starting to think in a way that's not uh, uh, pleasing to the Lord. You're beginning to kind of exalt yourself in a place that God has not given to you. And this is exactly what's happening. Jealousy is driving them. Why should Aaron and his family control the priesthood? Why don't we get to do what some of their, uh, their ministries are? Well, Moses is going to respond. Look with me now, verse 4 through 11. So when Mo- Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve him, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you, are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? Moses confronts this. First of all, we see that he falls on his face. That's a symbol of Moses humbling himself before the Lord. Moses really looks to the Lord to defend. Moses really puts this whole thing into the Lord's hands, beginning by himself just falling before the Lord, a a symbol of humility and brokenness. He realizes that this rebellion is dangerous, and he immediately takes it to the Lord, and he said, listen, We'll, we'll, we'll keep this in the Lord's hands, Korah. Here's what we'll do. You come tomorrow and you bring your incense to offer, you and your men, and we'll let the Lord choose. We'll let the Lord decide. If He honors you and wants you guys to partake of the priesthood, then, then we'll let Him establish that. And if not, then we'll let the Lord speak. Moses doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Guards, get these guys. He doesn't, he just, it's in the Lord's hands. He lets the Lord come to his defense, but he does, he does correct them. He does speak to them. He he does identify the nature of their rebellion. He says, you know, you're accusing me and Aaron of taking these things upon ourselves, but you are the ones taking too much upon yourself. Is it, is it too small a thing? That's the, the, the language that Moses uses here in the new King James. In other words, Was it not enough for you, Korah, to be useful in the Lord's kingdom? Was it not enough that the God of Israel selected you out of the tribes and gave you ministry? Korah and the the Kohathites had a very uh, important uh, ministry in actually assembling and dissembling the tabernacle. 
They were the ones that were to carry the most holy things of the temple. And Moses is saying, look, God has given you such favor. God has given you such a fruitful and blessed ministry, a place where you can serve, a place where you can be a part of the kingdom and the work of God. Was that not enough for you? Was that too small a thing for you that you now think that you have to have Aaron's ministry too? What is Aaron? You're not rebelling against Aaron. You're rebelling against the Lord. The Lord is the one that has organized his people. The Lord is the one that has established leadership in the camp. Moses calls them out, and he then looks to speak to Dathan and Abiram. That's, these are the two guys from the tribe of Reuben. Let's take a look at their attitude, verses 12 through 15. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. This is a whole different kind of an attitude with Dathan and Abiram, very disrespectful. We will not come up. Moses said, listen, guys, you've got a concern. You're, you're part of this rebellion with Korah. You've identified yourself. All right, let's come up to the tabernacle. I want to speak to you. We're not coming. Who are you? You know, you have a, look, look what your leadership has done for us. You brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey, a reference back to Egypt where they had food, where they had slavery where they had bondage, 400 years of it. And now they're, they're referring to Egypt, the place that God delivered them out of, as some pleasant place. You took us out of the, the sweet place of being slaves in Egypt to bring us out into the wilderness to kill us. You haven't brought us into any promised land. We don't have any vineyards. We don't have any fields. They neglected to note that none of that was Moses' doing. They forgot that it was just prior to this that it was their own rebellion, their own disobedience, their own unbelief that kept them out of the promised land. But now it's all on Moses. It's all his fault. We're not coming up. We don't respect you. You're not leading us into any good thing. This has been nothing but a a disaster coming out here with you. We come up there. Why? You want to put our eyes out? You want to just abuse us? No, we're not coming disrespect who made you prince over us very critical very complaining and the bottom line is their heart was discontent with the lord they were disappointed with the lord he had not given them what they wanted his ways had not turned out to be as they desired and they took it out on moses they were frustrated We came all this way only to find out that our sin and rebellion kept us out of the promised land. Now we're in this wilderness for a time as the Lord disciplines our people. must be Moses' fault. can't be my fault. can't be our fault. And so they began to complain. They began to be critical. They began to uh, look to Moses and Aaron. And Moses prays. It, it, it really, you can see that this one really, this, this accusation, who made you prince over us? They're implying that somehow you did all this to gain some personal advantage. 
You brought us out of Egypt and brought us out here so that You could become the Prince of Israel, so that You could be made rich on us, that You could take advantage of us. This is what they're implying. And that just grieves Moses. He said, Lord, don't even listen to the, don't Do not receive their offering, God. Do not let this attitude prosper. Lord, I haven't taken a donkey from this people. And I haven't lifted my hand to hurt them, not one of them. And of course, the Lord knows the heart of Moses. Moses has no desire to take advantage of them. It's the absolute opposite of what's true in Moses' heart. And Moses prays and says, Lord, that is not true. Don't bless this attitude, uh, insinuating that I have somehow done this for myself. We're going to read on here in just a minute, but I just want to make a couple of ministry thoughts for you, those that serve in ministry, those that desire to be used in ministry. First of all, you've got to recognize that ministry callings come from the Lord, not from man. A man cannot call himself into ministry. A woman cannot call herself into ministry. You cannot call yourself into a ministry. Yeah, I want to do this. I think I'll just go do that. Now, you can serve and you can help and you can... You can be make yourself of uh, you know a servant's heart, and that's required of all of us that we would all encourage and help and serve one another. But this idea of spiritual leadership, looking to really provide spiritual shepherding in people's lives, this is not something that a man can call himself to. God has to call. You see, Korah imagined that he could call himself. He imagined, well, if Aaron can do it, we can do it. That looks like a cool job he's got. Man, he's he's the top of the food chain. That's what I want to do. I want that ministry, Pastor. I want your ministry. <laughs> that looks important around here. I, I aspire to this ministry or that ministry. And, and oftentimes, the, those aspirations, although desiring to serve and, and be useful in ministry is a good thing, you have to be careful of your motives and, and check the heart and understand that only God can ultimately call. Spiritual pride will oftentimes create this desire for leadership. And I, I use a quote here out of one of my commentators. I thought it insightful. Listen to this. Those who desire most intensely the ability to wield power are also the most likely not to wield it well. This can also be true in the church. Some people aspire to positions of authority in order to lord it over others, not so they can serve others. You must check your heart, you must check your motives, and you must recognize that God has to inspire and call, and it has to come with that desire to serve God's people. Ministry is about serving, not lording over. Ministry is about giving, not getting. I heard a quote on the radio today. I liked it. I'm going to put it up for you. We don't use people to build up our work. We use our work to build up people. That's what ministry is about. We don't use ministry to, or we don't use people to exalt us in ministry. We use ministry to exalt and build up people. Ministry is about serving. Ministry is about seeing God's kingdom furthered in the life of His people. Jeremiah spoke of God, a time when God would raise up shepherds after His own heart. And he's rebuked those, those prophets and those elders of Israel who had used God's people for their own advantage. He says, there's coming a time when I'm going to raise up shepherds with my heart, not their own selfish motives. Peter 
would give warning to the shepherds, be careful, tending to the flock of God with great care, with great concern, knowing that you are ultimately serving under the great shepherd. You're just an under-shepherd. You're been, you've been a steward. Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul, in Acts, warning uh, to the church in Ephesus, he would say, be careful for the flock of God for which Christ paid his own blood to purchase the great value of God's people in, God's, in the heart of God. And it's not for ministry to be aspired to, to take advantage of that, to lord over, but rather to minister God's purpose and God's love into the heart of his people. Let's move on. 16 through 19, we'll see this gathering just gets, gets going here. There's some steam growing now, a momentum, a rebellious gathering. Pick it up, verse 16. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. We're going to have a little showdown here. Korah, you come out. Aaron will be here. We'll let the Lord choose. Verse 17. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in it, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Moses says, okay, we're going to let the Lord decide. Aaron will be here. You get your guys, all 250 of your leaders. You get your censors with incense, and you come, and we'll meet the Lord at the tabernacle, and we'll let the Lord make a decision here. What amazes me is that they all came. They all came. You would think that that kind of challenge would have maybe caught them a little bit like, wait a minute. Uh, we remember uh, Aaron's boys who brought strange fire into the presence of the Lord, and the Lord struck them dead. You'd think that that fear of God would have caught them here, and they would have thought, well, how sure are we that God has called us for the, to this high priestly ministry? Because this could be dangerous to our health if we're wrong. But there doesn't seem to be any of that in their thinking. They all came, they all, it says they came and stood against Moses and Aaron. So confident were they that they were entitled to this ministry. And Aaron was was in their way. So assured were they that that they were in the right and that they even had God on their side. They came believing that God was going to choose them and bless them. Again, this spiritual blindness that comes over the heart when it's in the flesh, when it's pursuing its own selfish motive. This often happens. People think that they're actually doing the Lord's work and they're in full rebellion against the Lord's work. Hard to believe that you could be that confused, but oftentimes this happens. People are so determined that they, what they have in mind and what they desire is right, and yet, just like these, these rebellious group of Korah, they were completely mistaken. Let's take a look at the Lord's response, verse twenty. And we'll read for a little bit here through 35. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. So the cloud shows up, the glory of the Lord shows up, and here comes the instructions. Get out of the way, Moses and Aaron. I'm going to wipe these folks out. The whole congregation, the whole nation. 
Verse 22, then they fell on their faces, Moses and Aaron. O God, the God of the spirit of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? Moses and Aaron interceding. Verse 23, so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram. Remember, Dathan and Abiram wouldn't come to him, so he goes to them. And the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, interesting, as he finished speaking all these words, as soon as Moses' words were done, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them. And they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So the Lord responds. The Lord confirms his choice for leadership over his people. He rejects this rebellious coup. He rejects these men who have decided to call themselves into a specific ministry. God had given them ministry. God had given them a place of service. But you see, it wasn't service that they were interested in. Because if it was truly service that they desired, God had given them a place to serve. But it wasn't serving, it was lording over that they wanted. It was position, it was authority, it was importance, it was being seen of men that they desired and longed for. And God deals with it extremely severe and uh, shuts it down. Pride is a dangerous thing. This whole critical and complaining and discontent spirit God says to Moses and instructs that the people, um, you need to get away from these people. And that's probably good counsel today as well. You know, it's, it, we see it a lot, unfortunately. Not, not, not much has changed. As I mentioned, Jude was calling some of it out in the New Testament as, as well. And we see it today. Sometimes people are caught up in their own ideas of what should be happening in ministry. They become critical of leadership. They become complaining of what's going on, what isn't going on. Why are we doing that? Why aren't we doing this? Why is she doing that? How come he gets to do that? 
And, you know, all of a sudden, this critical complaining spirit, you know what the Lord Moses told those, those congregation in Israel? They said, he said, get away from these folks. Back away from these tents of the complainers and the rebellious, the rebellious ones. That's probably good advice for you, too. Sometimes you just need to back away. Sometimes you just need to remove yourself. And it happens. Listen, we're all prone to complain. We're all prone to be grumbling uh, from time to time. Because no ministries are perfect. Moses and Aaron were not perfect. Moses had made mistakes. Moses is going to make more mistakes, as we'll see in the future. Aaron and, and Miriam, remember their rebellion. Aaron had already demonstrated his imperfection. These men were not in these roles because they deserved it, because they earned it, because they were qualified. These men were in these roles because God had called them to it. And they were doing what God had entrusted them to do. And that's what all ministry is, being faithful to do what God has given you to do in your home, in your family, in your workplace, in the church, whatever God has entrusted to you, be faithful in that place. And let the Lord bring whatever else he desires and has for you. Don't get caught up in jealousy. Don't get caught up in in that critical spirit, complaining, criticizing. How easy is that? Because men are imperfect, pastors are imperfect, churches have issues, people here have problems. Have you noticed? That's why we're here. Sinners, saved by grace. And so this is the life of the church, this is the life of the nation of Israel, but God is the one that organizes ministry and serving. And God is the one who establishes And to rebel against that is ultimately to rebel against the Lord because it's his established order. Look, 36 through 40, and we'll see God setting up something of a memorial here. And uh, I think this will be our last uh, verses out of Numbers for tonight. Picking up in verse 36, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy, and scatter the fire some distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. Because they presented them before the Lord, therefore they are holy, and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned up had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. These guys that that showed up with their censers, imagining that God would, would receive them, well, they were consumed by the fire of the Lord. But their censers actually fell to the ground. And the Lord said, because they offered the censers to me, I'll take the censers. (laughs) And the censers became holy. But here's what I want you to do. Have Eleazar kind of hammer those out and use them as plates to surround the altar, that they would serve as a memory. So every time you would come to the tabernacle and come near the altar, you would see those censers (laughs) that had once been offered by the rebellious leaders Uh, under Korah. And this would serve as a reminder that God is holy 
and that the, the priesthood is something of a, of a picture that God was trying to sustain in the life of the nation. Not just anybody could come before the presence of the Lord. Because man is ultimately sinful and separated from God. God was trying to communicate something to the nation. Listen, I am a holy God. You are sinful man. You cannot just have free access. Anybody who wants to come in and make offering, you're not allowed. Only the high priest, only once a year, only after very careful cleansing and sacrifice for atonement so that he could come in with his sins forgiven and atoned for by the blood of a sacrifice. What was God trying to say? He was trying to let his, the people know that they needed a Savior. They needed a, a, a priest, an intermediate, a mediator between their sinfulness and a holy God. He was speaking to them of Jesus Christ. All of this is imagery that would point to what ultimately the great high priest would do once and for all. Jesus Christ, and he would go in not with the blood of bulls and goats, but he would offer his own blood, the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus Christ became that ultimate sacrifice. That's why God is so particular about this imagery. This is such an important concept that he's teaching to his people and ultimately to teach to all mankind that men need saving from their sin. God wants our fellowship. God wants you to come close and have relationship with him. But he's holy. And he must, you must have some cleansing and offering for your sins. God has now even provided that offering. in the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, offered for you and I, that if we will by faith receive that, we now have this beautiful access. Look again, verse 40. This was to be a memorial. And what was he trying to say to the children of Israel? That no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron, in other words, if you're not from the high priest lineage, you should not come near to offer incense before the Lord, lest you become like Korah and his companions. I want you to compare that to some verses that we have from the New Testament. Compare that now. That that was the language given to the people of Israel before Christ's sacrifice, ultimately pointing to what Christ would do. Look at some of these passages with me. You don't need to turn. I'll I'll try and have them for you on the overhead. Compared to today, Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once, you who once were what? Far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were once distant, no outsider, no one could come near to offer incense to the Lord. But now you, in Christ, because of the blood of Jesus, you were far off, but now you've been brought near. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. For all these, all those years after Korah's rebellion, those memorial plates would have served as a fearful reminder But now we have boldness, confident access because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's the contrast that we have in Christ. 
this holy God. God has not changed His holiness. God's holiness has not diminished. God's stance or position concerning sin has not changed. God has provided atonement. God has provided a way in which your sins and mine can be forgiven. Isn't that what we were singing? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. This wonderful gift that has been given to us in Christ that we might have this confident access by faith into his presence. Some closing thoughts for you. Not all of the sons of Korah died in this rebellion. As you read it, it almost sounds like that whole lineage was wiped out. And and clearly many of them were. Many of them were swallowed up by the earth. Those those 250 men burning censers, they were burned. But we find out later, and we don't have time to look, but I'll just identify it for you. Later in Numbers chapter 26, uh, a census again is being taken, and we find out that there are still some sons of Korah. So apparently there were some in this, this judgment that did separate themselves, even from their own family rebellion. They realized this was not right, this is not good. A younger generation stood back, and those sons of Korah would be numbered later in the book of Numbers in a, in a census yet to come. And we see them mentioned again several times in the book of Psalms. Now this would be later in in David's time and generation. And now the temple, the the children of Israel have come to the promised land. King David is on the throne. It's the glory years of Israel. And guess who shows up from the Levitical tribe writing some of the Psalms to be sung in the temple? The sons of Korah. Look at just a couple. I'll just quote a couple because they're, they're ones you'll recognize right away. You probably didn't realize who wrote them. Psalm 42. The title of the psalm, at the beginning of the psalm, it says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So this beautiful psalm that we all know as the deer panteth for the water, written by the sons of Korah, that rebellious lineage turned their hearts back to the Lord and ultimately became fruitful even in their worship. Another psalm, a classic, Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I just think that verse is so cool. Their their great, great, great grandfathers had aspired to be the high priests rebelliously. But now, many generations later, we we find these, these sons of Korah writing and ministering and worship in the temple. And notice what they say, Lord, just to be a doorkeeper in your house. We don't aspire to be the high priest. Just to be, just to serve you in any way that we can. That would be our desire. We find pleasure in serving that place that you have made available to us. I know that speaks very powerfully to this whole idea of salvation, redemption. You know, that would be a bad rep to carry around. Oh, yeah, I, I, um, I'm trying to think of a Jewish name, but I, somebody give me a Jewish name. Who? Shloma? 
Slobo. Hey, Slobo. That's not one I've heard, but... <laughs> what tribe are you from? What, 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 what lineage are you from? Oh, I'm from Korah. Oh, Korah. <laughs> we know all about your family tree. We know all about your history. Yeah, that would have been quite a, a, a name to carry throughout Israel's history. But it shows the grace of God. It shows that somewhere along the line, these, the sons, maybe the grandsons, they turn their hearts to the Lord. And no curse from the past hindered God's faithfulness to, to use them, to love them, to save them, to open up opportunity for them to be of service in the Lord. That speaks to our hearts. You know, whatever the back, whatever the baggage is, whatever the, the, the cloud behind you or the, you know, the lineage that you may even be ashamed of or some of the, some of the things that have gone on in time past, maybe a family, uh, situation, some abuse, some horrible situation that you've, you've, you carry. And some of it not even your own fault, you know. The, these sons of Korah, they, they were, many of them too young to even know what their, their fathers were doing. And maybe that's the case for some, but it testifies of God's grace, that God can rescue, God can heal, God can break that pattern and bring you into fruitfulness for his kingdom, for his glory. These sons of Korah would live on, and they would not just exist, they would thrive, they would become fruitful, they would become some of the writers of the Psalms. And not only that, some of the, maybe maybe some of our favorite Psalms. Right? As, I, as I mentioned those verses, oh yeah, I've heard that one. Oh yeah, I know that one. And these are the sons of Korah that have penned those. It just gives testimony to God's power and His grace to save, to break the chains of darkness, to break the power of sin. Those things that have been done to you, those things that maybe you have done. God is able to break and deliver, cleanse because of Jesus Christ you have this wonderful access and boldness and confidence through faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the lessons for us in this rebellion of Korah. Lord, the, the writer of the New Testament would tell us that these things have been written to us for our example, that we might learn from these things, Lord that we might glean truth, spiritual principles. And I pray, God, that you would protect our hearts tonight. Lord, all of us are vulnerable to pride. All of us have moments, Lord, where we are tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So easy, Lord, to become critical, to second guess. Lord, that's not to say that leadership should not be held accountable, Lord. We're not talking about letting leadership behave ungodly, inappropriately. But Lord, we're talking about this rebellion that rose up in the hearts of these children of Israel when they began to, to take on too much for themselves, Moses said. They began to aspire to things that you had not called them to. You'd given them a place to serve. Lord, if it's serving our hearts are after, there's, there's, there's wonderful opportunity. Because you've called all of us to serve. You've called all of us to the work of ministry, which is the work of serving one another in love. Lord, there's no shortage of ministry opportunity. I pray that you would give us hearts 
that would be willing to be faithful with those things that you would entrust to us and to be content there, to recognize that everything we do, big or small, is done unto God and that you see it and that you reward it and that it rises to you like a sweet aroma, a blessing, an honor unto God. So protect our hearts tonight, Lord. Protect us as a church. Protect our hearts as leaders, Lord, my own included. May I never forget, Lord, that serving you is a privilege. That your people are precious to you, bought by your own blood. Help me, Lord, never to use people to build a work, but to use work to build people. And may that be not only in my heart, Lord, but may that permeate the heart of all those who would serve in this place. That this would be a church, Lord, where ministry is vibrant and love and service abounds from hearts that are just serving and loving on God, offering it unto you, not competing, not jealously comparing or scheming, complaining and murmuring and rebelling. Protect us, Lord. And continue to bless the good work that you've begun here, I pray. And Lord, I pray tonight also for the hearts that that may need to respond to you tonight. And just keeping your heads bowed with me for another moment, I, I want to give you an opportunity if you're here tonight and you need to respond to the Lord's Word. I spoke tonight about Jesus. I spoke of His sacrifice and this wonderful cleansing of sin that He has made available so that you can have wonderful access into His, his love and to His relationship with Him. And if you've never received Jesus, if you've never put your faith in Him, your heart is wanting to respond and invite Him tonight, I'd love to pray for you. Or maybe you're here tonight and you need to rededicate, recommit your life to Him. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're someone that... Uh, you know, something of your past has kept you from coming to the Lord. Or in some way it's hindered you. Some way it's, it's affected you. You're not really able to walk with Him in, in the complete confidence that He has for you. I'd love to pray for you tonight. Just as these sons of Korah, they came to a place of blessing, a place of embrace, a place of ministry. Their ministry still brings life into the hearts of Believers today, I'd love to pray for you tonight. If you're here and you need to receive the Lord Jesus, maybe for the first time, or you need to really recommit, rededicate your life to Him, would you raise your hand so that I can see you tonight and I'll pray for you. God bless you, sir. You, ma'am, as well. You three there in the center, God bless you. You, ma'am, as well. Lord bless you. Any others here tonight, these five or six that have responded, I'd love to pray. If the Lord's speaking to you, it's between you and Him. I'm not going to embarrass you, just going to pray. Anyone else, just before I pray, let me see your hand. So Lord, I do thank You for these hearts that have responded to You tonight. I, I do believe, God, that Your Spirit is speaking to them. I do believe that it's Your Word, not mine. 
Lord, that's going into their heart and drawing them towards you. And so they respond tonight, Lord, and they've they've asked for prayer. And Lord, my prayer for them is that first and foremost, they would recognize that they need a Savior. That they would say honestly that, God, you are holy and I have fallen short. And I need you first to forgive me, to cleanse me of my sin. And I'm asking you to do that by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me, that sacrifice made at the cross once and for all for my sins, that I might have forgiveness tonight, that the cloud that's been over me, that that, that, that baggage I've been carrying of the past, Lord, that it would be broken and that I would be set free tonight. Cleanse me by the power of God in Christ. And help me to live for you now, Lord. I, I want to I set my heart after you. I want to repent. I want to turn from the way I've been going. I want to live for you. And I'm setting my course with you, Jesus. I'm asking you to fill me with your spirit that I might live for you and that you might live through me. God, I want to have this wonderful confidence, this wonderful access, this beautiful relationship that you've promised. I receive you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me tonight?